Welcome to Shorts Season 2. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I live in Portland, Oregon. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today we're reading It Ends With a Kiss by Riddhi Datsadar, published on Ada Stories. It was shortlisted for the 2021 Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Riddhi Datsadar is a neuroqueer journalist and researcher in Delhi. They work on disability justice, public health, climate and culture. In 2020, they won the TFA Award for Creative Writing for their poetry. We've linked the story in the show notes. It Ends With a Kiss follows the story of a young woman, Kajri, navigating a complex and changing world. Kajri lives in a modern dystopian society where the air outside can kill, people are trapped in a big brother society, watched and imprisoned by their government. In this world, she meets a young woman, Tara, within the colony she lives, and their relationship helps drown out the fear and loss that she's surrounded by. So, Jen... Where do we begin with this story? I mean, this story is so dense. There's so much in here um, that I honestly don't know how <laughs> don't know how we're going to begin or kind of navigate this. Um, other than to say, like as always, as all of these stories, I loved it. I loved the complexity of it. I loved how much we are hit with different themes, different stories, different kind of times. We are, it's, yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, this author is incredible because they do something really challenging of creating this dystopian world that we we learn more about through the story. You know, we start, and we'll talk about that, but we start in a place where the first few paragraphs, I didn't know that the government was watching, that the air was poisoned, that climate change had my guess is that climate change had uh, completely forced society into new ways of living. But then they also capture really beautiful moments between people, really subtle, um, elegant, emotional moments. And I'm in awe of their writing. So I'm excited to just dive into this because there's so much here. And maybe we should start with the world. We should start with the world that that we are um, that we are led into because as you say, it kind of, it comes out through the story. We discover these little clues all the way through that help us understand that this is a kind of, there's, that something's changed. Something huge has happened in the society. That means that people are, uh, sort of trapped inside. So the air outside is poisonous. It's toxic in some way. Um, people are, are kept inside. There's something, uh, there's something contagious going around that means that people can't um, have sex or kind of be too close to each other. If somebody goes outside, they have to wear a mask that's kind of buckled. So it's like a, it feels like a more of a gas mask than the masks that we're all currently wearing in our contagious society. Um, and this, uh, these clues kind of come to us all the way through the story. Yeah, very relatable in some contexts. And I like how Dasadar brings it to the next level of maybe, and I'm not sure when they wrote this story, but because of COVID and what all of us have experienced in the last two years, feeling like you're trapped in a colony with the government telling you 
what you can and can't do, obviously it's not nearly as extreme, but is is really quite relatable and it doesn't take as much imagination to jump to that next level. So Kajri, when we first meet her is 10, but then after the first few paragraphs, she's now 16. She's a teenager. She lives in the colony, which is a high rise building um, with her mother and father. And it seems like families are trapped or are kept live in these small apartments in these high rise colonies. Yeah. And the one of the things that the government has instituted is this kind of big brother cameras in every room within these quote unquote colonies. Whatever this contagion is, um, it is something that that means that the government don't want people to be kind of touching uh, or particularly like having sex. So actually it's sort of it's not so much like they're watching our every move, but it's if you you know, you're not you're not allowed to kiss. And obviously we understand from the story title, it ends with a kiss. We are, you know, we are hurtling towards something dangerous. Yes, absolutely. And the title reminded me also of um, the book, They Both Die at the End, where there is this implicit title from the beginning that tells you how the story's ending, but it's not a spoiler. For some reason, it builds tensions. It's the use of the title as a narrative device. And I love that. Um, and just like you were saying, there's this point in the story where the narrator says, it wasn't safe in outside spaces and inside there were regulations. Still, the government understood that affection is important for relations and families to keep churning. So they added this to the roster of signs. They understood that people are sneaky. So they added a blinking camera in every room, in every hallway and gender segregated bathroom. They knew that sexual frustration makes people troublesome. So there was a once a month signup sheet for married couples under the age of 60. Over the age of 60, ordinary people should turn their minds and bodies over in service of our great nation and God, they said. Oh, there's so much there. I love that. I also just like this idea that like there's a cutoff point to your sex drive. It's just incredible. <laughs> Under 60s, you also, what's the sign up sheet? All I want to know is like, are you signing up to have sex with just like anyone? <laughs> like what's happening? This is an important question. Yes. I don't know. What, what's the sign up sheet? And also how do we sign up? Do you know what this reminded me of though as well? And I don't know, I don't know what, whether this existed in the US, but um Obviously, COVID has also spread through uh, kind of face-to-face contact, through uh, through kind of kissing and all of that kind of um, all of that kind of stuff, all of the affection. Um, and in the UK and in some other countries, there was guidance about having sex. Stop. That was introduced in COVID. Are you serious? Are you are, are <laughs> um, you serious? Dead serious and. So I I was having a look at this because I was like, this is this is incredible. So the government, the NHS, put out guidance about uh, kind of having sex um, during lockdown and what would be safe and like how and whether COVID was spread through sex. So they kind of had all of that information. But alongside that, there were charities who were putting out like more practical advice. And I'm going to read... <laughs> from some of the advice oh my god oh my god and this was like this is like widespread like (laughs) this is things you should know firstly and i'm quoting your best sexual partner is yourself nice yeah (laughs) or and this is 
Amazing. Or someone within your household. Now, I don't know how useful it is to tell people to have sex with people that they're living with, which is either like feels like family there's... or like random housemates or your friends. <laughs> don't feels just start like... having sex with people in your household, friends. Feels like we're missing some nuance in that guidance. Just a, a hint of nuance. <laughs> it's literally incredible. Um, people should, I'm going to keep reading. People should avoid kissing, wear a face covering and choose positions that aren't face to face. Stop. Masturbation, I'm still going. Sex toys or having phone or online sex are recommended as the safest options. Online sex? In what world is online sex the safest way? Isn't there's a lot of 2020 true crime episodes about Isn't this? Isn't this incredible? You're supposed to wear a face mask while you're while you're having sex with someone in your household? Having sex from behind. Um, I just Jen is <laughs> Isn't this incredible? So my favorite thing as well. So in discovering this, I also discovered uh, through a friend of mine that Canada has um, had also introduced advice. We are on such a tangent here, but I feel like this is information that the world should know. So in British Columbia, health officials recommended, and I'm now reading from a news article uh, on Global News, health officials are recommending an age-old Cutting-edge tactic for sex during the COVID pandemic. Glory holes. No. Jen, our podcast has just taken a real (laughs) weird turn. I thought this was a wholesome podcast. Okay. Excuse me. Glory holes are being recommended? Use barriers. Okay. It says use barriers like walls that allow (laughs) sexual contact. (laughs) Prevent close face-to-face contact. The health organization writes on its website. That was from the British Columbia... Center for Disease Control. Oh my god. This is real news god. from 2020. Oh. I mean, use barriers such as walls is my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite sex advice I've ever heard. I don't even have anything witty to say because that's so absurd. Such as walls. Just say don't. Just say don't. They're like, well, we have to be realistic, you know, people. It's a little bit like this story of like, well, you know, we got to give them some advice. So we'll let them sign up once a month unless they're over the age of 60. Then absolutely not. Imagine how many people had to copy edit that, though. Imagine how many levels of approval that had to go through. And everybody was like, yeah, mm -hmm, such as walls. Great advice. Check, check, check. should we then start with the beginning paragraph, Jen, which I know you love? I just, a a big, deep, appreciative sigh for the author for this first few sentences. So the story begins. The first time Kajri kissed a girl, she was so nervous, she bit her own tongue. Oh, I just, I love... I love that. I love what that tells us about this person. I love that I'm immediately going, firstly, who is she? Who is Kajri? How old is this this girl, this woman? And how did that happen? I just, like, what was happening in the kiss? Like, there's so much to that. And it's so charming. It is. And so exciting and so endearing. Like, absolutely, what a first line. And so then 
we go into this next paragraph tells us more and makes at least me fall more deeply in love with this whole cast of characters. When they drew apart, the girl saw the tears in her eyes and ran back through the hole in the bushes to the barbecue, to the backyard barbecue, where the adults were nursing stale drink breath and simmering tensions that would turn into spats once the couples got back into their cars, their children sleepy and afraid in their back seats. Oh, I mean, such a moment. We've all been to parties where there are couples and people are drinking and the tensions are rising between possibly an unhappy couple. And you know what it feels like to be at a party that's supposed to be a good time, but there is at some point or at least one couple that has some simmering tensions underneath there. Maybe I've been part of one of those couples before. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Hard potential. to say. Hard to say. Um, and I just love that perspective of the children kind of looking at these adults. So the adults are like having this really lush time and they're kind of drinking and there's food and it's a party. And then it's like, but you just get this sense of like through the children's eyes, they're, they're, they're just tired and afraid. And it's like that perspective I think is really under told that perspective of how it could feel as a child to see adults or your parents or your parents' friends like out of control or emotional or or drunk. Um, it's lovely to place us there and to have that next to, because it's it, it comes directly after that line that we were just discussing around um, the first time she kissed a girl. So it's like we get this real sense of this really young child and just being kind of overwhelmed and overwrought with the world that she's seeing. Exactly, Jen. Exactly. It's this idea that the adults are having a good time. They feel like they're letting loose and having fun, but it's it's not quite safe for the kids or it feels scary. And I promise I won't just read this whole story into the microphone, but just, just a few more lines. <laughs> It says, Kashri didn't like seeing the uncle's eyes dippy from the drunch. Auntie smiling wide, the adults singing off-key and laughing two loud laughs. She'd escape to the bookshelf and read until her parents came to get her. So there again, we have exactly what you're saying. You know, adults feel like they're letting loose at this party, having fun, but kids can see that. And Kashri can see that. She can see that something's happening, that the booze is making the adults act in ways that she doesn't like. And I just think it's genius how she talks about the uncle's eyes dippy from the drunch. Yeah. Can we also talk about the word drunch? Yes. Is this, oh. I mean, I'm assuming this is like a drunk lunch, right? Yes. Incredible. I mean, <sighs> it's just so wonderful that that, like, she introduces this. The fact that that's a term that is kind of coined and created or invented by this character who will meet Jojo Auntie. It just it just tells you so much about, you know, it tells you so much about that character, the Jojo Auntie character, because she's kind of created these. She's named them. They are like, sounds like they're kind of legendary events. Um, and they're just like drunken lunches because Jojo Auntie doesn't like to wake up with a hangover. It's just wonderful. Like there's this kind of, we're just told so much about this world and we're told so much of it through the, 
the these through the children's eyes, but because we get these descriptions of what's happening at the at the at the lunches at the drunches, um, we also get a sense of this world of the society of like people coming together. It's really social. It's really fun. It's out of control. It's kind of chaotic. Um, we're just told so much in such a short amount, which obviously is the is always at the heart of these extraordinary short stories. Yeah, and I think we get to see with this choice of the word drunch and the way that uh, Jojo Auntie is characterized throughout the story and how Kajri remembers her is that Jojo Auntie plays a super active role in creating her world. Like Jojo Auntie has chosen and is building her family, her parties, the way she wants. And we see her, we see Jojo Auntie stand up for herself and uh, a few times. And I just... It, it also really makes me feel a lot of admiration for this character of Jojo Auntie. Yeah, I think she's such a crucial character and she's so present in these early passages, in these early paragraphs of the story. And I love that line where they say, Jojo Auntie didn't have a family, so she loved her friends extra. Just that sense, as you say, that she's building a world, but she's building a family. She's building her family through the people that she knows, through the people that she chooses. And that that bond between our kind of central character, Kajri, and Jojo Auntie just feels so strong in these initial paragraphs. I, I love it. I love that sense that you could, that you build, you build your own family. Yes. And it's such a common um, experience for so many queer people around the world where their families of origin do not accept them and their identities. And so they are forced to create uh, their own families out of their friends and the communities that they seek out. And I love that Jojo Auntie seems to do that with joy and celebration and love in these first few paragraphs. And she she so welcomes Kajri into it. And just Kajri's description of Jojo Auntie, she had the deepest, most soothing voice of all the aunties, was the tallest person Kajri knew, and with the strongest shoulders. Kajri used to sit on them when she was a baby, directing, DR, DR, while Jojo Auntie was a ship, and Kajri, her dearest pirate potty pants. Their connection is so close. It's so it's sweet. Beautiful. It's beautiful. And I, you know, we're introduced to this character we discover later, much later actually in the story, that Jojo Auntie is a, a trans woman. Um, and at this point, we and I think this is this is so clever and, and beautifully sculpted by the author. This is just a strong woman, loving, extraordinary, revered auntie figure. And there's no we don't need that other narrative or that other experience, or that other description of them as a trans woman. They're a woman, and they're, they're just shining in this story. And I think, again, that's the kind of description that we aren't often given. And I, I loved it. I loved that, that the author delays that, um, that little piece of information about Jojo Auntie and just lets us experience her fully the way that the girl experiences her as her auntie, as this brilliant, strong woman. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's 
just getting letting us celebrate who Jojo Auntie is in the space that she creates um, and the life that she creates in these first few paragraphs. And what I love is the author brings us back to the central problem that Kajri's feeling is like, I just kissed a girl and I don't, what do I do about that? And, you know, it's, she says, if there was anyone who would know what to do after this, it would be her, meaning Jojo auntie. She was often kissing other aunties and she never got angry. And that's really sweet. It's just like, she's so obviously a safe person for Kajri. And then she's also makes her feel safe, but also teaches Kajri about boundaries. She was very strong and had built this house herself. Take no shit from men, Kajri, she said, still upset after everyone had left. It's, we're in love with this character. Yeah. yeah. And we're, we're, we're in love with her because of the description through this kind of child's eyes. There's a real purity to how children love and how children can fall in love with with adults and kind of the people in their life that they kind of revere. And there's something about the way that this is written that just, you just, you just understand that this, this, this little girl is just in love with this, with this strong, wise woman who's in, is in her life. And I, I love it. And we, and it makes us fall in love too. Mm -hmm. So we are placed in this time with Jojo auntie at one of these drunches. And then the narrator pulls us out and suddenly the second time Kajri kissed a girl, it was six years later and she was 16. Jojo auntie had disappeared six months and 13 days ago. Brutal. Yeah. And that specificity of the time shows how, shows that that love endured for those other years throughout those years, the time that we weren't with these characters. And, you know, we discover as the story unfolds that Jojo Auntie has lost her own family. We're never really told why, but we understand it's it's that they that they didn't accept her. And that she feels that she needs to go and be with the family that she has built. Um, and they don't, you know, there's no... Um, specifics given about that but we we can Im we can understand that that means that she's going to be with some form of her queer community who has been ostracized while we're not given many details about where jojo auntie is going or why exactly she's going there it's easy to make the logical jump that if a government is penalizing and and mandating exactly what physical relationships would look like for straight couples, that whatever the mandates would be on queer relationships would be much more violent and uh, worse. And she does mention, Jojo Auntie mentions when she's leaving that someone else had been picked up by the government. So we understand that the government is going after queer people, trans people, um, and disappearing them. So there's a very ominous, scary threat that lives at the heart of this story as well. There's also something extraordinary. And again, it's like, this is like drip fed to us through the narrative. We understand that Jojo Auntie and um, the mum, the 
the main character's mum, are extremely close. They're kind of best friends. But actually what we learn, we come to discover is that they, um, they were in a relationship um, when they were teenagers, before Jojo Auntie um, transitioned. And the way that that relationship then is kind of explained to us and kind of understood by the, by the girl is really fascinating. She writes, Ever since Jojo Auntie disappeared, Mama stopped finishing her sentences. Dad said it was because since the third grade, Jojo Auntie had been completing Mama's. Back when they were neighbors and before Dad and Mama met in college and when Jojo Auntie still had family. When I first read this, I was like, oh, they're best friends. But just like you're saying, deeper into the story, we start to understand that they were, they were in love. That Jojo Auntie was the great love of her mother's life. And when Jojo Auntie leaves, her mother is heartbroken to such an extent that she's often not getting off the floor. And I think there's something extraordinary in when we realize that, when we realize the level and the extent of the mother's grief for um, this, this great love and this great friend who is, who is leaving. Um, what's interesting as well is the acceptance and openness that we, that we get from her husband. And that really struck me. Um, there's an understanding within their relationship that Mama is and was in love with Jojo Auntie. And at that point where you're, that you're describing, the author tells us, after the first few times Dad had found her there and they had fought, he stopped saying anything. He let her sleep there and brought dinner to the room for her and told Kajri like she couldn't ask any more questions. Mama just needs our support right now. And so Kajri didn't ask anything and Mama didn't explain. And there's times later where you understand, you know, that you hear the dialogue between the parents and they are, you know, he's being very understanding. And there's, again, it, it's the same thing that's set up for us at the beginning with this just acceptance and celebration of Jojo Auntie and who she is. We get it again through the father. And I think, I think it's really refreshing just to hear people understand that love and to hear a, a heterosexual male understand that love between, between them and that friendship. Um, I, I love that. Yeah, I think it's really different than what we normally read about. It's a, definitely a different narrative. And, and it's a different narrative than than is playing out in the outside world. I mean, there's such a there's such a difference between inside the building where you're safe and outside the building where you are not safe, where it is toxic, where you cannot survive. Mm -hmm. And like that's exactly what's happening here. So inside the family, inside the colony, Jojo Auntie was was safe, but outside she's being persecuted and she doesn't have the protection of the family, the, the family that she's built. Mm -hmm. But also the idea that the inside the colonies also still isn't safe. You know, maybe it's not toxic air, but the government is watching you. And yeah. there are a few moments where they reference someone coming to the door and saying, just, we just need a few minutes of your time. And that being when you disappear. And I think what, I love about this, it, this story is those small details of relationships, like 
the mother and Jojo auntie or Kajri and her, the girl Tara who we're about to meet, but then also the mixture of the poisonous world outside birds are dropping dead um, from shock. And then she says, now the birds were gone. Uh, It's just so it's like, you're having these very normal, real emotional moments between family members. And then outside the world is dying. Yeah. And how that impacts Kajri and the decisions she's trying to make. And she's also trying to navigate the basic thing of what does it mean that I want to kiss this woman? Okay. So then Kajri meets Tara in the top floor of the colony, this sort of high rise building. She's on the 30 something floor and it's called the skylight room where they, where they meet. So already from this kind of oppressed space, these sort of being watched everywhere, we're in the skylight room. There is a different feeling about this place. This is a place of light, of newness. And we meet this character, Tara, and they sort of, they sort of start to chat and they have this experience of, you know, slightly getting to know each other. And quite early on, there's this, there's this passage, which I just loved, where Atara asks Kajri her name. And this is what we hear. Kajri's heart thudded loudly in her ears. She didn't know why, and she stuttered her name. There was something in the air immediately, and neither of them had put it there. It just was. When you know, you know, darling, Jojo auntie would have said, blowing a stream of smoke out her nose. But she wasn't here. And so, like, they're only at the point of learning each other's names, and they are, there's something there. Like, just that idea, like, there's something there. Neither of them had put it there. Just that electricity that you get when you meet somebody that you, that you really like is just so beautifully described here. And I was so excited about this moment in the story. Me too. It's just little baby gay panic. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) it's just like she, she describes Tara and then they're just, there's, it's automatically there. It's the sweetest thing in the world. It's this moment of celebration when you meet somebody that you really connect with and you really like, and you're kind of nervous and then the realization of Jojo Auntie isn't there. Her her yeah. guide, her person. Her guide. So she's, but she has her so firmly. She knows she that that love and that bond is there. That she knows exactly what Jojo Auntie would say, what she'd be doing, her expression. Um, but it absolutely it crashes up this sort of sense of excitement with this sense of loss. And you can understand, I mean, this this girl is 16. Like, cast your mind back, Lizzie. I mean, <laughs> even when there isn't, uh, you know, an apocalyptic society and loss and fear and dread and disease all around, being 16 is fucking confusing. <laughs> and, like, all of your emotions are just, like, layering on, on top of each other. So you're like, I'm really turned on by this girl. Where is this person I need in my life? I am feeling such loss. I am terrified. I am stuttering. I am excited. I am just full. Just so many emotions are spilling out in this paragraph. And and as a 16-year-old, I'm just fully relating to Kajri in this moment. 
I know. And I, I know, Jen, you're an aunt. I'm an aunt. There's so much about Jojo Auntie that I hope that I can embody for my own niece. And like, what a strong character she is for her to guide her through some of the most, most difficult moments of her life and confusing moments. And I think that is just such a lovely part of this story. Even in absentia. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like her experience of meeting this girl and sort of falling for this girl is like really tied up with, you know, what would be the wise thing that my that my auntie would say to me here? Yes. And and Jojo auntie is becomes even more a part of their relationship. You know, they start hanging out more and Kajri brings up her photo album and they're looking through this photo album. And the last photo, of course, is Jojo auntie and uh Kajri's mother when they're in high school before Jojo Auntie has transitioned and you know they're there they are together in their youth and there Kajri is with Tara in her youth it's just this really interesting moment because we learn more about that history while we're also being grounded in the present of what's going on with Kajri yeah and that's that past and present is just comes back all the time so, you know, that section that we spoke about where, right at the beginning of the story where they're describing the drunches and sort of we're, we're, we're with um, Kajri when she's 10. Like those, those wisps of those experiences come back into this present moment and really define how some of how she kind of interacts with the world, how she kind of meets Tara. The voice of Jojo Auntie is so, as you say, so, so present. And this kind of personality of her is so present, much more so than actually her actual parents who are physically there and physically there with her. I don't know how that struck you. I think what how it struck me is you're exactly right, Jen. And I don't think I quite got it in the way that you're describing your how you're saying it's kind of opening up this different way of thinking about it that I had thought before, where I noticed that the author also refers to quite explicitly how time is different. She says, in the colonies, time went strange. It curdled, like when you opened a milk carton and it smelt sour and came out in gloops that floated in your glass. That very visceral description of time. I love that passage. So good. So good. And but then how that's reflected in the relationship of Kajri, Jojo, Auntie, and her mother. I, I actually didn't get that until just right now, what the author is doing with, with this thinking of time and how it changes and goes forward and backward in the story. Super, super interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about the relationship and how it kind of uh, develops between Tara and Kajri because they're having these kind of illicit meetups um, in the skylight room. Uh, They know that they are being watched by the cameras, but as two girls, as two young women, there is zero suspicion that what they could be doing is, would be anything other than just, you know, two, two friends hanging out, which, you know, again, just tells us something about the society that, that we are in and the fact that, you know, we are in such a heteronormative world that it wouldn't cross society's mind, whether it's the big brother government or the other families in the building. 
Um, nobody would think anything of these two girls kind of meeting up, but they start to realize that they, that they like each other and that there is definitely, you know, more than friendship there. Yeah. And they do that by kind of first being like talking about sexual experiences with boys and both being like, ew, gross. And kind of in the conversation there, Kashri's like, oh, imagining what it would be like to be physical with Tara. And there's just this like unspoken sexual tension that's happening between them, but they're kind of tiptoeing around it, trying to figure out each other under what you're saying exactly right. No one's, no one suspects everything. They're still acting just like regular gal pals. <laughs> and it's interesting how they start to, as you say, they're starting to kind of explore this by, they talk about um, uh, kind of their sexual experiences, or certainly Tara talks about, about hers. There's, a, there's that passage, which I desperately don't want to read, where she talks <laughs> about giving a blowjob. <laughs> I, I know. I was like, are we going to do it? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know that we need to. I don't know that we need to. Let's leave it. Let's we'll leave just, it. You can read the story, folks. Um, but yeah, this is kind of very viscerally written description of mm-hmm. um, uh, of that. And then, uh, as you know, we understand that Kadri is is um, has a has you know different or less experience potentially. Um, and there's this moment where where the author says, that was the thing about Tara. Even though she was only a year older than Kajri, she acted like she knew more. And she could only show her growing affection through increasingly frequent small acts of violence. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's a reference to the fact that like their physicality is starting to grow between them. So it's like the only way they can be physical is like, there's this point where like Tara like grabs her face. <laughs> It's like, shakes it violently like <laughs> shakes yeah sort of is shaking her and it's like you can tell that it's, it's affection but it's there's no way for them to express what they really want and desire to each other so they're sort of finding these other ways so these coded ways of kind of developing their rela- relationship and it's like pent up right it's really pent up and so it's coming out in little violent acts you know Tara said you're such a pretty little shit Tara said after she pushed Kadri in her hair. So it swished a little, filling the room with the smell of coldness and synthetic lime. Like there's just, <laughs> it's ratcheting. They can't yeah. take it much longer. Yeah. And what's interesting is that then when we fast forward to the, to sort of towards the end of the story, we realize that in order, they, they have this discussion about wanting to kiss each other and the fact that the sort of hand signal that would mean kissing in this, in this, um, in this world, the, the bird beak mm-hmm. um, is, uh, is not what they mean. They want to kiss properly. And we realize that in order to be able to do that, they have to go outside. And I just think it's really interesting. You know, we... The author introduces this idea of the small acts of violence that are their kind of growing affection. And actually, in order to kind of consummate this relationship in any way, so to have a kiss, which is the smallest form of that consummation, it's also dangerous. It's also threatening. It's also kind of putting yourself in physical harm. So there's this sense that like the relationship itself is is one of, of real physical danger. Yes, which, of course, is the reality for so many queer people throughout history and still today. 
it's it's that that level of danger for just the smallest acts of connection and affection. And I just want to call out before we get to the very end, this moment that Kajri has where she's imagining she's confused. Is she a lesbian? What does this mean? And she's imagining a conversation with Jojo auntie. She said she would have asked Jojo auntie about being a lesbian, but Jojo auntie wasn't there. She imagined it sitting on Jojo auntie's couch, eating cheese balls from the crinkly plastic wrapper. Do you think I'm a lesbian? She would have asked. I don't know my mint julep. Jojo auntie would have said smoking her clove cigarette. And a few more sentences. And she says, words are just things we use to make sense of this tangly mess of stuff. She's like... Tangly mess of stuff. (laughs) That is our lives, friends. (laughs) I mean, Kajri's both self-soothing with this imagination of Jojo Auntie, but also, again, this force of this woman is so strong that she's coming to her to to tell her it's going to be okay. In her imagination. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, beautiful. I mean, the real love story in this in this is is Jojo Auntie and Kajri and that bond that they have. Shall we talk about the ending? Yes. Yes. What did you think, Jen? Oh, the bit of this story that really, really, really stood out to me and actually the bit that I screenshotted and then sent to you on, on WhatsApp before we spoke is the moment where we sort of introduce, where Kajri kind of, introduces the idea of the kiss and it says what makes a really good kiss desire delay a really small flint of fear and I love that I love that I love that that is how they are they we set up this um this kiss that we know is coming from the very start of the story because that's the title. But I just, I love the kind of purity of, of this experience and the fact that they both want each other, the desire. They've had to wait, the delay, and then this small flint of fear that's going to make this kiss just the most extraordinary of any of our lifetimes, as, as, as it feels like. Like the, the tension and the build up to this, this kiss is, is huge and it's the most beautiful, beautiful romance. And, and they have to choreograph it. They have to choose a place that they can both go outside the colonies where they won't be watched. They have to m- practice pulling off their gas masks and kissing each other and then doing the buckle again. I mean, choreographed is exactly the right, the right word because they, they, we literally hear that they've rehearsed this. They rehearsed this in the skylight room, mimicking the motions. So it is that anticipation is exquisite is exquisitely built through through this and all and also just <laughs> worth noting that they're literally practicing about to kiss in the skylight room with cameras and still the government's like just friends just some <laughs> pals galling around <laughs> so when they're talking about the rehearsal the the um sort of rule that they say is as soon as you feel your shoulders and your stomach start to resist pull it back on. They're talking about the mask. So that is the sort of the level of danger that we're in. By having the mask off, they are going to start to feel physically that they are being affected by whatever this poison, this whatever this gas, whatever is in the, is in the air. And when they are actually having their, um, having their kiss, 
we hear they should have 30 second kind of time limit. That's how long I think that they, they think they would be able to, to breathe out there. But we get this final paragraph. It must have been more than 30 seconds because Kajri was feeling lightheaded. When she opened her eyes, she was on her knees. <clears throat> so when I, yeah, and as, as I first read it, I don't know if you had the same experience. When I first read it, I was like, wow, what an extraordinary kiss. <laughs> like, no, me too, yeah. It's a buckle. And then actually it's like, oh no, wait, hang on. It's because of the, it's because of the, the breathing, of breathing in this gas. Mm-hmm. And so they've physically put themselves to such extremes because of this need, because of this desire, and because of their their relationship. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It's, it's extraordinary, and it changes the tone of that last paragraph, at least for me, mm-hmm. of this beautiful kiss, this moment we've been waiting for. And then, you know, Kajri's lightheaded. She's on her knees. Tara's fastening her mask for her with her shaking fingers. And then there's suddenly, and there were two figures approaching them from the distance. And that really scared me. I was like, oh my God, what does that mean? What are, who are those figures? What's going to happen? Like, I was like, does it end with a kiss? Mean that these girls are taken away? We don't get an ending. We don't know what happens except for this beautiful kiss, the toxic outside world and these ominous government figures, I guess, coming towards them. And then that final line just after that, so there were two figures approaching them from the distance, but all Kajri really noticed was the morning light spreading through the blue sky outside the dome, breaching the barrier and spilling into her. So <sighs> she's filled either, and we don't really know, either metaphorically or, or truly <laughs> with, with this sort of, this light and there's something extraordinary there. There's something powerful and beautiful that's come to fruition because she's kissed this, this woman she loves. It's so beautiful. And it just leaves me wanting so much more. I just, I want this to be a novel. I want it to be a series of short stories. I'm, I love these characters. I'm invested in them. I, yeah, her, Kajri's worldview is just, it is complex and adolescent and confusing. And the way that the author weaves together the narratives of these characters in this world is compelling. And I just want more. This is my direct plea. (laughs) (laughs) If you are listening, Riddy, we want more of this. This is a novel that I would love to read. Um, because it's the, this short story is so densely packed. We just touch for a moment on some of these issues, on some of these stories, on some of these characters. We know that as this is playing out, her mother is still kind of a shell of, of, of who she was before. Jojo Auntie is or isn't still out in the world with this community sort of against the odds trying to survive. Mm-hmm. What happens next for Tara and Kajri? I mean, all of these characters have extraordinary narratives that we just get a moment of. And yeah, this is a this is a, a novel I, I would love to read. So Jen, why do you think people should read It Ends With a Kiss? 
I mean, firstly, it's beautiful. It's it's beautifully written. That some of the language and and writing here is some of the best I think we've read. More than that, what's interesting is that the author builds a world that feels far away in some ways from the world that we're living in, this kind of dystopian experience. But in in many ways, it's very similar to the world that we're living in today. And in some ways, it's it's more utopian than the world that we're living in. Some of the kind of acceptance that we see and the sort of joy that we see in the characters like Jojo Auntie are narratives that we don't hear enough. We don't read enough. Um, we don't celebrate enough. And I was just totally taken with all of all of the nuances of how those characters came to life. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with everything you said more. I don't think I can sum it up any better. Please read this story. Well, thanks for reading with me, Jen. Thanks for reading with me, Lizzie. Thank you.